0: If you ever wondered how you can change your habits and these affect other people around you, then today we have Hanley Van Vick from Brat Lab, who wrote the book The 11th Habit. And this time I asked her to choose one of her favorite
1: questions for the start. I think, what do you think leaders should be asking more, caring more about or doing? Perfect. Well, I do think leaders should be thinking more about and acting more about the fact that they often say that people are their best asset or their greatest asset at the company. I hear that a lot. And I think that the intention is there, but when I look for the action sometimes to support that statement and that intention, I get a little bit concerned. And I think that if leaders in the workplace could understand and find better ways to care about and show that they care about their employees and start doing things to encourage self-care and not sacrificing yourself at the altar of work, but rather having work enrich your life and vice versa. I think the the space in which we work or the areas in which we work and the companies which we work for will be remarkably different. In your book, The 11th Habit, you did describe
0: thinking about how we could change the habits of people to help them even at the workplace to help change them
1: exactly i think i think the, the main thing is to humanize the workplace not as not using industrial era thinking in which people are machines or cogs in a wheel who have to come and do a job and you know we all know that that is what is required and that is what they must do but you spend so much time at work and so much of your energy and your life is spent there that I believe that greater care should be taken in the workplace to humanize it first so that people can do the jobs that they are paid to do even better. And a lot of that does start with habits. It does start with self-care, which is one of the reasons we wrote the book, The 11th Habit, because we believe very strongly that in order for people to arrive at work, energized, ready to go, Um, with great stamina and keeping them engaged over a period of time requires you first to look after yourself. And then to build work around that or the world of work around that in such a way that it continues to humanize and add value to you as a human being, for me, I think is a very important aspect of work. Because I, I firmly believe that people want to do well and want to do their jobs well. And very often the way that work is structured uh, tends to get in the way of that. And I think if we carefully think about and reorganize the, the way that we work and where we work, I think this will make a very big impact on the lives of people and the productivity of companies. So what would be,
0: for example, a specific example where a leader could frame the
1: environment? Well, there are very many ways that you can do that or where you can start. I prefer starting with the physical space in which you work. And this is not always possible, I understand, because we have worked with manufacturing plants and a variety of places. But I think if you can add a little bit of fun and curiosity and interest into your physical workspace for a start, that will immediately change how people engage and experience that space. Closely second to that, I believe, is working with relationships in the workplace, Um, growing diversity so really looking at the social uh, culture of the organization and using social contagion as a approach to spread better relationships a better moods and everything else that tends to go and better habits which tends to go with social contagion can you define social contagion a bit more So the first concept around space is called choice architecture and that was a concept that was developed by Sunstein and they wrote a book about it called Nunch. The second social contagion has to do with a theory or a concept that was developed by Nicholas Christakis. And we've seen some of his work in terms of weight gain, obesity, smoking cessation, and so on. And basically what social contagion says is that we as humans both influence the people around us knowingly and unknowingly and vice versa with all the habits that we practice or the moods that we have or the way that we behave towards other people. So, for example, social contagion is seen uh, in things like rudeness. Rudeness tends to spread or contage throughout a space. It's like uh, stopping smoking or eating habits tend to contage quite dramatically between individuals for about three degrees of separation, three to four degrees of separation.
0: Wow, three, three degrees. degrees. Yeah. So yes. A friend, so if you stop smoking, you mm-hmm. affect the friend of
1: a friend of a friend. <laughs> Correct. Friend, a friend of a friend of a friend. And you may not even know that person. That's the, that's the even more interesting thing. that even at four degree separation, if you've never met that person, you still have, I think it's about a 10% impact on them in terms of behavior. So it's very powerful um, when we begin to realize how interconnected we are and how much we can contribute to the lives of others or not and vice versa. Wow. That, I mean, that's crazy. So
0: what would be a way uh, where we consciously influence them to the better by changing our
1: habits? Absolutely, and that's kind of where we get back again to the self-care, the 11th habit. If you can manage yourself in a way that helps you be a healthier person, you will naturally begin to affect those around you without necessarily even trying. So that is, in the end, should start. And hopefully other people will be doing the same thing around you and affecting you also and helping you because another very interesting thing that we noticed is with something like willpower. You know, we ourselves think we have an endless, a bottomless pit of will willpower that we can always apply when we're trying to learn new habits or behave in a certain way but unfortunately willpower runs out quite quickly and we become very reliant on other people to support us in willpower so we have endless willpower for other people telling them what to do and how to do it when we tend to run out of it for ourselves a little bit so that's another aspect that kind of plays into that supporting of each other in terms of how we live our lives and the habits that we practice and choose. So if I would want to
0: take more self-care, what would be questions I would start asking myself
1: to get into it? Well, when we developed the the dose value for health, happiness, and security, and really what that means is we we were curious about which habits were really worth practicing to improve your life quality or to improve productivity in the workplace or reduce costs. So we looked at about 26 habits, which included health and happiness habits and uh, specifically looked at, you know, would exercise make you happier or would more sleep make you happier? I think we know the answer to that one. Or which happiness habits could you practice that might also encourage making you healthier? And is there a domino effect between them or almost a contagion between them? So basically what the 11th habit says is make sure that you start by looking after yourself. Make sure that you exercise very regularly because it's the one thing that we know can affect so many different aspects of our health, our happiness and and our security. Obviously sleep is one of those things that many people I think are struggling with nowadays. And so we looked at all the habits of sleep and how to improve your sleep quality and quantity. Um, and then we looked at happiness habits, which are the happiness habits that you could quickly and easily practice to not only make you happier, but obviously then make you a nicer person to be around. So mindfulness practices, expressing gratitude, growing optimism. Those are very, very many, uh, very many of those habits were uh, very powerful in their dose, the application of their dose and affecting your life quality your productivity and or um, costs, cost, cost issues that might might be something that companies might look at more than an individual.
0: Okay, so let's say if I would want to exercise more, how would I structure maybe my surrounding myself to put to make
1: myself a new habit? Exactly. Well, this is one of the things that I find really fascinating about the Four Powers framework that we have, which says how do we get people and ourselves to practice these habits um, in a, in a sustained fashion over a period of time and uh, keep us engaged and interested? Because I actually believe, I know that people think habits are automatic, but I do believe there's a large part of habits that is not automatic. Because if your life is disrupted in you anyway, through, you know, you have children or you travel or you change jobs everything, as your situation changes, sometimes even the habits that you used to practice might fall by the wayside. So there's no such thing as an automatic habit. I think it's always something that you have to continuously um, think about and choose to practice and you should use people and spaces and rules and regulations around you to keep that in place. So for example, um, you might if you want to make it easier for yourself to do exercise is to make sure that you have all your clothes ready the night before for the next morning so that there's no gap between you having to get up and get into your exercise clothes and get out yeah. so that would be maybe a, a technique that you can use for yourself it also matters why you want to exercise and it has to be something meaningful and it's not always meaningful enough to say I want to be fit or I want to lose weight. You might have to think about something that has a bit of a deeper meaning to keep you doing that on the days that you don't feel like it because you know there are going to be days that you're not going to feel like it or you need to find a friend nearby who can help you um, exercise on the days that you do feel like you don't want to do it because you know if they're there, you will not disappoint them, you'll get out of bed and you'll go and exercise with them. But then also, you know, to make sure that um, the spaces that you use to exercise are easily accessible and safe to you. So it may be that you can go outside and go run or walk or do something, or to make sure that any gym that you might use is really, really close by, so the spaces matter. Um, And the proximity of the space matters also. So those are the kind of things that you can probably do for yourself at home. In the workplace, the workplace can help you by having, for instance, sit-stand desks, which help you uh, move your body more regularly, or having what we call exercise snacks, like short little bursts of exercise throughout the day, roughly every two hours. Just do four minutes of exercise in small groups. So maybe you and your team can get together and do some squats or some push-ups or just go for you know a quick walk around the around the block. And work should be encouraging you to do that because that will not only help you from a health perspective, it also helps you from a productivity perspective in terms of things like cognitive function and reducing error rates and increasing stamina. And there may be rules and regulations at work that allow you to then exercise. So to come in um, your workout clothes to work so that you can exercise more easily or get to a gym before and after work more easily or have showers at work. It'll allow you to do some exercise and then shower and still be ready to face clients. So there's a variety of ways and techniques that one can create the world around you or the context, as we say, um, to make that more likely for you to exercise.
0: It makes sense, building your environment, your context, that makes it easy for you to not choose anything else. It's the same as if we put the chocolate far away and the healthy things near us uh, versus the other way around.
1: Exactly. That's, a, I think what you're referring to there is a 20-second rule which says if you if you put either the TV remote or the candy far enough away so that it takes you 20 seconds or more to get to it, so lock it in a, in a closet somewhere, um, it will discourage you from reaching for it and make it easy for you to you know, either watch more TV or eat too much candy 20 seconds that i mean that's actually crazy i
0: actually remember an an example from the book which i had to laugh where you freeze the credit card (laughs) 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 so you have to wait until it it (laughs) that is so funny (laughs) yeah but it's i mean it's logic right it's just the moment where we don't think as parents what do you see what they struggle with the most
1: for the parents themselves, what I notice that parents struggle with is also the self-care aspect. Um, and I'll go as far as saying that maybe moms struggle more than dads, but I, that might not be true. And because, there are so again, there's so many changes in your life and someone else um, requires so much of your energy and attention that sometimes I think one forgets to take care of yourself or take time out for yourself. And how can you begin to build it into your life together with um, your children and the demands on your time um, to stay healthy, happy, and secure. And one of the things that I am very but uh, I feel very strongly about is to say that every little bit matters. You don't have to do the, practice these habits for necessarily very long periods of time. Um, you know, for fifteen or 20 or 30 minutes, Every other day, you can get all the benefits that you need to get if you could, if you could structure it into your life in a way. Um, and it's about, I think, being creative around those things in a way that will help you as a parent become more resourceful and resilient and energetic, which I think every parent wants to be, but it's a very challenging space for them to, to, to be in, especially I think when, when you have very small children. With the habit of self-regulation,
0: I will also call this a habit of emotions. Mm-hmm. Uh, if people notice that they're getting habitually upset, frustrated, angry, what could they do in that moment to get themselves out of it and create maybe new habits of
1: emotions? Well, funnily enough, and I know I'm I'm going on about exercise a lot, but you'll be amazed at how much doing, um, you know, 50 squats when you're about to get angry will will calm you down very rapidly because you're managing your, your physiology. So very important to do something physical usually when I, at work here, when I'm beginning to get upset with someone, we have four flights of stairs. So I'll usually ask them to give me four minutes and then I'll leave and I'll go run up and down the flights of stairs. Really? I've I've actually actually stopped a meeting and done that once. Really? (laughs) Absolutely. So, you know, managing your physiology is very much the first thing. The other is, is to use self-reflection and to to Practice things you use, mindfulness practices, and that can literally be anything. I mean, mindfulness practices can be done in conjunction with your exercise if you're walking, or it can be the typical things that you would think, which is you know, sit down and meditate for 20 minutes um, every day, or for 10 minutes every day, or find just something that really inspires you um, every day to do. It could be I've encouraged people to put on some music and to dance for a few songs or to just listen to music, just something that helps you self reflect and think about your own uh, behavior and and where you are and how you're feeling and how you're coping to take a few minutes to do that every day, because that sort of hones the muscle of mindfulness, which I find um, Mm. is very helpful in self-regulation. The other thing is to become other focused, to become focused on other people. Um, And that often has to do with expressing gratitude, which I find very, very helpful when we are trying to self-regulate and to remember that we have to be grateful for what we have. Um, But also just random acts of kindness, which is another very interesting uh, set of behaviors that can very quickly change your internal emotional landscape. So if you begin to embed those into your day, um, into your week, and literally you only have to do this, this kind of thing once a week, you will immediately notice how your, how your internal landscape begins to change and how much easier it becomes to manage your or regulate your, your own person, your own self, and your own behavior.
0: I love that. You know, I love stories. So what would be one of your stories that you kind of went through a ditch, a challenge in your life, and maybe one, two questions that you asked yourself or somebody else asked you that changed and got you out of it? Hmm.
1: It's very interesting. I think the first thing that comes to mind is in 2006, I was diagnosed with cancer and I was very, very angry about it at the time because I felt that it was unfair because I was living a very healthy lifestyle. I was exercising every day. I was eating very well. I was uh, working more than most people, but I didn't necessarily think that that was a bad thing because I loved my work. Yeah. So I felt somehow um, that, I'd, I felt that, the, that the world was a meritocracy and somehow you know, I got dealt the, the, short, the short end of the stick on that one. So after sulking about it for quite some time and being very angry about it for you know, a few weeks, I suppose, I did sit down and say, all right, well, if you had to look at this as an opportunity to reevaluate your life and make changes that maybe you'd forgotten that you wanted to make or just examine, examine your, your attitude and meaning towards life. Uh, you know, what would you change and what would you do? And I leaned very heavily at the time on Viktor Frankl's logotherapy work. Um, which basically says you derive meaning uh, from life in three different ways. The one is through your tasks or the things that you do. And whether that is paid or unpaid tasks does not matter. Um, Your experiential values, he calls them, your attitude towards love and beauty um, and the world around you and how you experience and uh, are grateful for those. And then lastly, your attitudinal values, which is when things go wrong and there's nothing that you can do to change it, what is the attitude that you take towards that situation? And, you know, I don't know if you know anything about Viktor Frankl, but given that he uh, refined his logotherapy theories and practice in the concentration camps, in fact, um, it does make you not uh, dismiss that kind of approach to... Easily. So, having sat down at that point and using those three steps to really evaluate the work that I was doing and what I would want to change about it to make it even more meaningful, how I was experiencing the people in my life and uh, reacting towards the beauty around me and the things I could be grateful for, and then finally uh, examining my own attitude towards the things that I could not change and how I would uh, take a stance around that and live my life was a very much a turning point for me. Wow. And how did your life change since then? Well, at that stage, I was running my own my own business in uh, in South Africa. Uh, shortly after that, I took a year sabbatical and I finished my master's degree in psychology. And I actually wrote uh, about uh, Viktor Frankl's approach in terms of health, the effect it has on physical health, because there's quite a lot of research in that. Um, and specifically for caregivers and um, people recovering from cancer, but also people who have heart attack. There's a very interesting link between hopelessness and uh, cardiovascular uh, incidences. Really? Yes, very, very interesting. The work around hopelessness is completely fascinating and how it affects the physical body and the immune system. How Uh, does it affect the... the um, well, there's a, there's a, there is an entire field called psychoneuroimmunology or psychoneuroendocrinology, which specifically looks into this field. Um, and we, they have noticed that um, hopelessness, uh, and we call it hopeless helplessness, seems to have a very um, specific uh, effect on what they call pro cytokines. Um, and I'm now getting very technical on these things, So, but there's certain little things that go around in your body that cause inflammation
0: mm-hmm.
1: or um, create issues around uh, specifically the heart but also the immune system in a different, through a different pathway, through a different brain pathway. So your mind state actually regulates to some degree or affects to some degree your actual physical immune system. And if you get stuck in that mind state over a period of time, Typically about a year there's actual physical changes as a result of the mindset, nothing else so you can keep everything else the same that mindset is, is literally toxic to your body Oh wow it changes uh, your serotonin levels it changed, it affects your they call them TNF uh, levels and a few other very complex chemical processes that, that come from the brain or or triggered by the brain into the body. And of course, the body itself is a brain. um, So the two work together. So that that body-brain barrier that we think exists or they thought used to exist, they now know does not. The one kind of affects the other. And the changes in these pro-inflammatory cytokines have a very strong impact on how the immune system then functions. And obviously, it's your immune system that stops you from getting ill in the first place.
0: So if you're a friend of somebody who is continuously hopeless, what could you do to get him maybe out of it or nudge him in the right direction?
1: Well, I mean, I will always go back to, to Viktor Frankl's work on that to really be conscious of what you cannot change and what your attitude is towards that because sometimes there are things that you cannot change but mostly to begin to work on appreciating the things around you people um, like i said you know. so in his example he said even when he was digging trenches when he was in turn in the concentration camps he would still take a moment to be aware of the beauty of the sunset yeah so even the smallest things to remind people of the smallest things and to you know go again going back to those happiness habits expressing gratitude random acts of kindness really working on those things and being outwardly focused i think is really important and then very importantly you know finding purpose and meaning in life and in work is one of the critical components to making sure that we don't go down that slippery slope yeah. um, of yeah. hopeless helplessness because Um, I don't know if you've read any of even of Martin Seligman's work um, around learned uh, learned helplessness. There are unfortunately, it's a habit like anything else. If we continue to choose and practice those habits, we begin to learn to be helpless, and it it becomes harder and harder to unlearn that the longer you are in it. So it's very very important to make sure that if you have someone like that around in your life that seems to be doing that more than usual, um, is to encourage them to. Um, really work at being other focused to help regulate themselves um, and to be grateful for the spaces around them and to create an attitude um, towards the things that they cannot uh, change that is more resourceful than otherwise. Yeah. If more people would do that, we would have a nicer society. So where, where do you see the biggest challenge in human interaction? (laughs) Oh, well, um, I think currently, I mean, there are many challenges currently, I think the biggest challenge is is tolerance and having capacity for diversity so uh, tolerance you mean that we
0: don't that we judge other people or that we don't integrate them
1: I think a little bit of both, and I think we will always tend as human beings to judge other people, which I think is natural, but I think if our judgment moves into um A you know um, a slide internationalism as I call it right now in which we begin to create barriers between us and other people and label them and begin to stereotype and move them into a space where we can't make space for them in our lives Uh, and for diversity in our lives I think that becomes very problematic and I think that is one of our biggest challenges um, going forward. Absolutely. If we notice
0: ourselves going into judging another person or labeling them, how could we, just thinking more about trying to understand the other point of view or
1: asking them more questions about them? Yes, I think your, your second your second idea is, is spot on. So very much um, asking questions, seeking to understand, being curious. And for me, it's, it's always reminding myself that everyone has their own cross to bear. Everyone has a story. Everyone has um, you know, a life behind their exterior. Um, and to go look for that and to understand that as much as possible, I think is really critical in how we live our lives today. Because the world is becoming very much a mixture of all kinds of people from all kinds of walks of life and all kinds of places. And that is not gonna happen because I think it is natural for human beings to move and migrate and find better places in which they want to succeed and they want the best for their children. It's it's perfectly natural for that to happen. And unfortunately, the world is not quite structured um, in that way. Well, some places in the world are, some places are not. Um, And some are more likely to breed intolerance and contempt for people who are different um, to yourself. Uh, And that, I think, is one of the things that I am very passionate about fighting against as much as possible. Amazing. And the time is already up. I could ask two hours more questions
0: (laughs) here. (laughs) So if people, for people who are listening, where do they go to to learn more and read more especially? Of course, go to buy the book,
1: Mm -hmm. The 11th Habit. But where could they go to? Well, they could go. Definitely, The 11th Habit is a great place to start because there are many references in that book as well, which will help them find... Other things to read and to learn, uh, because we were very careful about making sure that we contributed everything that we needed to to the people who contributed to our book, of course. Um, There's a lot to read about. If you're interested in Viktor Frankl's work, um, there are many different places where you can go and have a look at that. The University of Vienna, for example, have a dedicated site website to him. Also, his book, Man's Search for Meaning, is worth reading. So those are probably the two places that they could go to. If they wanted to learn more about any of the work that we do, they can go to BRAT Lab, which is the Behavioral Research and Applied Technology Laboratory, and have a look there also for for some of the the ideas that, um, that come up in the book. And of course, you know, if there is anything specific that people would like to know or ask, I'm always very happy to answer that as best I can.
0: That is so kind of you. So thank you so much for being on here. And
1: giving so much value to the listeners. It was absolutely amazing. Well, thank you very much for this opportunity. It was really great chatting to you as always. Um, And I I hope that we've touched some lives and, and made a difference.